You're listening to a 95BFM podcast. Why is it that the world's other humanitarian crises don't see the same responses as Ukraine? As beautiful as the response has been, why is there a discrepancy with people from other countries seeking refuge? I asked this question to Rita Shah, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. His research bridges several disciplines, including sociology, politics, international relations, and anthropology. Here's that interview. Uh, you know, as hard as it is for us to maybe um, call it out this way, I do think that there is what what um, Edward Said would call a kind of an Orientalist discourse going on. I think that we need to recognize that those who are seeking refuge from Ukraine are oftentimes seen as looking like quote unquote us. We've seen this mentioned explicitly by my by media and by politicians. And there's a sense that they're different to other uh, refugee and asylum seeking groups. They're, they're seen as kind of less of a threat, less of a difference from the kind of cultural values and beliefs that those of us in the West have. Uh, and I think it really symbolizes a, a, a core concern, which I raise in my piece, which is that um, there is an endemic sense of, of, of racism and Orientalism in the way that we think about um, supporting some in need, but not others. What do you mean with Orientalism? So Orientalism is this idea, um, it was it was kind of coined by Edward Said, um, who talks about this idea of a difference uh, that's positioned, uh, a categorization of difference, saying that there are those who prescribe to kind of Western norms, values, beliefs, and those who don't are placed into the other. And so effectively, in the Ukraine response, what we're seeing is that these are white, European, uh, Christian individuals who are seeking refuge. And so because of that, they're like us, while others who are seeking refuge within Europe or outside of Europe are of different religions, different skin colors. They're, they don't share the same uh, ideologies, beliefs that we do. How is the focus on Ukraine hurting other humanitarian responses? So there are three ways I think that it's doing so at the moment. Firstly, it's diverting financial aid from other crises. And this is in part because our humanitarian system works on a kind of zero-sum basis, which is that if we give money to one place, we have to take money away from somewhere else. And it's just because it's not sufficiently funded. So, for example, if we look at the Ukraine right now, uh, nearly 80% of the monies that's been asked for under humanitarian appeals has been funded. But if we compare it to, say, Afghanistan, where that's only 38% funded, Yemen, 27%, and Sudan, 20%, um, it leads to real impacts on in terms of whether people's needs are being met. So, for example, um, we are seeing right now in, in Eastern Africa and the Horn of Africa that nearly 18 million people could be in risk of starvation uh, because there's not sufficient humanitarian aid there. Also, it's diverting expertise away from uh, other crises. Uh, what happened when the Ukraine response started was that a lot, many humanitarian organizations called on their staff who were working in other places who had significant experience to go and lead the Ukraine response. Uh, and that's basically draining knowledge, expertise uh, uh, that's, that's needed in uh, some of the other responses. 
And then lastly, I think it's diverting um, political attention and concern away from some of the other protracted crises. Um, we don't see politicians hopping on planes and going to other humanitarian crises these days or senior UN officials. Um, and that means that long-standing crises, such as those that we do see in, in large parts of Africa or in Yemen, Afghanistan, Palestine, um, get ignored. They become forgotten. And, and I think that this is uh, a real concern. True, yeah. If we look, for example, how the EU handled the 2016 Syrian crisis, that was not comparable with how they handled Ukrainian refugees. They're spending more and more money to keep actually EU borders closed, spending a lot of money for other countries to stop irregular migration. In understanding that you also use the concepts racial erasure and global wide ignorance. Those yeah. are ideas by philosopher Charles Mills. Could you maybe explain how you use those ideas in analyzing this? Sure. Um, so basically, this concept of, of, of uh, racial erasure is this idea of the fact that we don't talk about race enough uh, in how we look at the response in the fact that there is there are considerations of race uh, and, and where people are coming from that are framing and shaping our response. And by not talking about race as a concept, uh, we hide behind the principles of humanitarianism, which are, um, quote-unquote, impartiality uh, and, and, and non-discrimination, which sound good on paper, but then if we look at what happens in practice, those aren't, those aren't occurring at all. And as you highlighted, um, the EU response to refugees who are not from Ukraine, when we compare it to those who are from Ukraine, really foregrounds that very clearly. Yeah, and also humanitarian organizations could be vulnerable for that maybe. There's maybe kind of structural racism within humanitarianism. Could you explain that? I mean, I think part of the, the, the structural racism that we see in humanitarian organizations is a product of the, the genesis of humanitarianism. So humanitarianism, some and many are now arguing, is, is kind of an ongoing legacy of colonialism. So it's a way of political agendas being played out through how we deliver aid in the most acute crises in the world. And so we use our aid responses as a mechanism for securitization. And that securitization approach uh, is in fact driven by what I discussed earlier, this Orientalist attitude of who we see as threats and who we see as safe to us. And unfortunately, and, and this is particularly true uh, after 9-11, after we see that there is this belief that those who come from part, predominantly the Muslim world are the threat, and so we need to protect ourselves. And, and yet... We don't acknowledge that this is a phenomena that exists within the humanitarian architecture. And in part, that's a product of the fact that we need to look at who leads these humanitarian organizations. Who are those making decisions in these organizations? Oftentimes, they are people with um, privilege, uh, oftentimes white individuals who, who, don't, who aren't able to see that racism or don't feel that they can call out that racism. And so, and in fact, that culture reproduces itself within the humanitarian architecture. So it's a combination of how money is flowing, 
who's working in there, and then whose voices are heard and not within the humanitarian architecture itself. I think all of these factors in combination uh, lead to humanitarianism, in effect, um, creating structures of racism within it. Yeah. What would be needed to undo some of those biases? Is there a solution for that? Well, I think there's two, two important things that we need to start with. One is transparency. One is let's be transparent around the fact that humanitarianism is not a neutral affair. Uh, let's stop hiding behind uh, the banter of impartiality, non-discrimination, and let's recognize that humanitarian aid is not, uh, it does not uh, fall into either of those categories. And, and if we recognize that, first of all, and then we need to do something about it, and that's where the accountability comes in. And I think the accountability has to come in on many levels. One is, um, I think there needs to be accountability on the part of political leadership um, to, to on the part of us as citizens to say, hey, why are you talking so much about Ukraine and not about some of these other crises in the world? Um, why is it that our government is not investing monies in other um, humanitarian responses to the same level that we've been able to invest in Ukraine? Uh, we need to stop treating it like a zero-sum game where if we give money to one country, we can't give money to another country. I think we also need to hold our media to account. Um, I think we need to ask our media, why is it that you feature stories about, um, and I've just noticed this in New Zealand today, uh, stories of Ukrainian uh, refugees here in New Zealand who are, who are on the verge of losing their visas and might be sent back to Ukraine. What about the hundreds or thousands of other uh, refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, um, who are also in a same, similar situation and are also going to be returning back to locations where their lives are under threat. Why aren't we reporting on that? Um, I think our aid architecture needs to change. We need to um, think about uh, disentangling our, our political agendas from how aid is being distributed, and that might require more pooled funding mechanisms which, where decisions aren't being made by individual governments. And then lastly, I think it's about whose voices are being heard in such responses. Are we, are we listening to, you know, the, the political leaders, the, 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 those in charge of humanitarian organizations, or are we listening to those who are working on the ground and who, who can see the real need? Uh, I think we need to do a better job in humanitarianism uh, in subverting the, the, the idea that the expertise lies with those in the West. That was Ritesh Shah, Senior Lecturer in Education at the University of Auckland. That was a 95BFM podcast. To hear more, head to 95BFM.com slash bcasts.